That's great. Um, we're going to turn our attention to the scriptures in, um, right now, and so I'm going to turn it over to my friend Adele. Yes. Good morning. My name is Adele Rodkey, and I have the pleasure of reading the scripture today. Uh, but first, let's pray. Lord God, your word is our lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Shine through your word today so that we, our hearts will be illuminated and we might see the world through your eyes with compassion, with grace, and with truth. We ask these things in the name of the one who came in grace and truth. Amen. Our reading from today comes from Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I would proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. You may have a seat. Thank you, Adele. Well, if we haven't yet met, my name is Benji. I serve as one of two lead pastors here. And I just have to say at the outset that um, we've already had church in here this morning. Like, man, stand Sunday stuff so good. Tempted to just call it a service and go home. But... Adele just read some really beautiful stuff, and so I want to spend the next few minutes unpacking it. We are nearing the end of our time in Colossians. We have um, this passage today, one more next week. We'll do the related letter of Philemon the Sunday after, and then it'll be Advent. Um, Now, I don't know about you, I have loved our time in Colossians, as Paul has repeatedly just held up the beauty, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus. For the first three chapters of Colossians, it's as though Paul is obsessed with Jesus and is intent on using every inch of scroll available to him to share that obsession and to prove his thesis statement from chapter one, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In this final chapter of the book, however, Paul is going to turn a little bit, because we're going to get more insight in these next couple of weeks into the author of the letter than we do the author of our faith. And this passage is going to reveal three things to us about Paul. And the first is this, that he was dependent on prayer. Paul opens our passage by calling the Colossian Christians to devote yourselves to prayer. Now, if you grew up in the Christian church, you already know that the right answers to any question in church tend to be Jesus, read the Bible, and pray. That's the trio right there. The first half of verse 2 is like classic youth group answer, right? Like, uh, be devoted to prayer? Yeah, dude, good job. That's what youth ministry is like, you guys. I mean, I've been there. You don't know, but it's fine. Mandy's feeling it. Um, and it's true that Paul does offer a very straightforward command here. Devote yourselves 
to prayer. And that uh, other uses of that same word devote in the New Testament make it clear that this is not dabbling in prayer. This is not experimenting in prayer. Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. Persist in prayer with both watchfulness and gratitude. And with that final phrase, he actually sweeps all of us into this command. It is so necessary in the Christian life to be both watchful and thankful. But I think we already know that most of us don't do both very naturally. We will typically be drawn to one or the other. And one of the most obvious places is in prayer. We tend to most often pray in line with the outlook of our hearts. So watchful folks tend to hear the praise reports of the thankful and think, ugh, how hopelessly naive. They wouldn't feel that way if they understood all the battles to be fought. And thankful folks tend to hear the warnings of the watchful and think, ugh, how naively hopeless. If they ever stopped picking fights, they would see so many reasons to give thanks. Friends, could it be that a deepening relationship with God in prayer actually allows both traits to flourish? Notice verse 2 does not read, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and or thankful, depending on your temperament and the situation you're facing. No, Paul calls the whole church then and now to a devotion to prayer that weds together watchfulness and thankfulness. Paul issues a call to pray. So far, very entry-level Sunday school answer kind of stuff, and you're thinking there's nothing too revolutionary here. Let me tell you what I find revolutionary in this passage. It's that Paul calls the believers to pray as an expression of his own need. Let's try to wrap our minds around this for just a moment. Paul, the church-planting, scripture-writing, pagan-debating, frontier missionary apostle to the Gentiles who encountered the risen Jesus face-to-face, got most of his theological education, direct revelation from God himself, says, pray for me. In verse 3, he says, pray for us, includes the team around him. And in verse 4, says, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. We'll return to the specifics of that request in verse 4 in just a moment. But for now, I want us to sit with the radical nature of his request for their prayers. The first century Greco-Roman world was both patriarchal and an honor culture. I want to talk about each of those for just a moment. As Mike helped us consider last week when we looked at the household codes, in the patriarchal society of the Greco-Roman first century, being a father meant near-absolute authority over the children in the home. Furthermore, as Scott McKnight helps us to understand honor was one of the highest ideals of the broader society at the time. So he writes, everywhere Rome went, its culture went. And a singular mark of Roman culture was the insatiable quest by upper-class males especially to climb the social ladder to be honored, often with a monument or statue for their accomplishments. Honor is both one's perception of one's status and simultaneously, and more importantly, affirmation by one's peers or important others. Honor thus becomes public verdict. The revolutionary nature of these verses lies in the fact, the unavoidable fact that Paul was a father figure to the Colossians. And from that place of exalted cultural status, he lowers himself and begs them to pray for him. And in so doing, Paul charts a very different course of leadership within the family of God. 
one in which the father figure would dare to admit his own neediness to his spiritual children. He could have clung to his status. He could have stuck only to the ways in which he, as their spiritual father, was praying for them. But instead, he begged his spiritual children to remember him in their prayers. What does this tell us about Paul's vision of prayer? Well, at minimum, it tells us that he believed the claims that would later be succinctly captured by one great American theologian. You've got to pray just to make it today. I promised the nine that y'all would get that because they did not. You need to know, Paul would have been at the center of the dance floor, like, turn it up, that's my jam. Friends, Paul is utterly dependent on prayer. He knows that he doesn't have all that he needs to be all that God intends and to fulfill all that God has laid on his heart. Paul knows himself well enough to know his limitations, and he knows God well enough to know his lavish generosity. And so he begs the Colossians, pray for me. Now, we laughed, but I want to ask us an uncomfortable question. Do we even believe MC Hammer, let alone the Apostle Paul? Do we feel our own need of prayer the way Paul did? At least that's a question I found uncomfortable this week as I considered my own habits and practices of prayer. Paul's example in this passage causes me to ask, do I believe so deeply in my need for divine intervention and divine wisdom and divine transformation that I am driven to my knees in prayer and willing to ask others to do the same on my behalf. Listen closely. The last thing I want to do is have any of us walk out of here with a sense of ought about our prayer. The summary statement for this first point is not, we really ought to pray and God will be bothered if we don't. No. I want to ask, have we rightly assessed our need such that we believe we will be impoverished if we don't pray? Friends, like Paul, none of us has all that we need to be all that God intends. But we serve a God of lavish love and endless resources who invites his children to ask in prayer. If we dare to believe both of those truths, we will find ourselves increasingly dependent on prayer. But the passage doesn't only reveal Paul's attitude about prayer. We also see that he was dedicated to purpose. Right out of college, I served as a middle school pastor at a church in Ventura. And one of the things that we would do in, when I was on staff there, a few of us, a very few of us, would gather early on a Monday morning to pray over the prayer cards that had been submitted in the offering plates the day before. So lifting up the prayers and the praises of the people of God in that part of the church family, it was, it was really sweet and powerful and meaningful most of the time. It wasn't uncommon, however, when the prayer cards got distributed that one of us would end up with the dreaded card on which someone had written two words, unspoken, anonymous. Now, Unless you are FBI-level handwriting expert, there's not much you can do on an early Monday morning with unspoken and, and anonymous. So I found myself praying things like, Lord, you know this person's heart, and hopefully their handwriting, and you know their need. Maybe their praise, but probably more likely a need, or they probably would have written down a praise, but... Um, 
Could you do something for someone somewhere sometime? <laughs> like, a- amen? Right? <laughs> I share that because Paul is actually the opposite of that in this passage. He's very specific and he's very clear in verses 3 and 4. Would you look at them again? He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. It seems that Paul is maintaining a single-minded dedication to his life's ultimate purpose. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you may already know the background of the man who would become known as the Apostle Paul. He has an origin story that makes Bruce Wayne jealous. Can you turn to Acts 9? That's where we're going to be in a moment. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're headed. After growing up in the city of Tarsus, a young man named Saul trained to become a Jewish rabbi, and he distinguished himself among his peers for his knowledge and his zeal. Eventually, a new movement arose, one in which otherwise faithful Jews claimed that a man named Jesus from Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah, and that, despite having been subjected to a painful death by crucifixion in Jerusalem, he had actually risen from the grave three days later, and now many were claiming to follow him, and let's just say that Saul wasn't feeling it. So he started opposing and persecuting this growing movement of Jesus' followers, harassing them, throwing them in prison. The book of Acts even tells us that when a man named Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing him. This is not safe for the whole family Bible reading kind of stuff. So Acts 9 tells us about one of his religious persecution field trips, and he's on his way to the city of Damascus. And what he wants to do is he wants to round up all of the people there who claim the name of Jesus, and he wants to throw them in prison, except that on the way, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, encounters Saul. And Saul is overcome. He's temporarily blinded. And Jesus gives him instructions for his life. This Damascus Road experience, this vision of Jesus is one many of us are very familiar with. But it isn't the only appearance of Jesus in this passage. And it's actually the second one that I want to draw our attention to. Are you in Acts 9? We're going to pick up reading in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision... Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Saul goes to Damascus, intent on throwing Jesus' people into prison, and along the way, he becomes one of Jesus' people. 
And he starts going around immediately telling everybody in Damascus, oh, hey, actually, turns out I was wrong. Let me tell you about Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of God. You need to know him, which is completely wild, except that it's just the immediate application of what God promised would happen in verse 15. Did you catch God's purpose for Saul, the man who would eventually be known as the Apostle Paul? In verse 15, God says, this man is my chosen instrument to what? Let's read it together. Proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That's basically everybody. Acts 9.15 sets Paul on a trajectory he would never outgrow. And we know this because he tells us himself. For example, in his letter to the church in Rome, it has always been my aim, to, my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And to the Corinthian Christians, he says, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. And here we see in Colossians 4 that his pursuit of his calling, it's not even dependent on his comfort. Paul reminds the Colossian Christians of the setting he's in. He says, for which I am in chains. Now you need to know, you probably already do, Paul is very gifted with metaphor. We find them throughout his letters. This is not one of them. This is literal. Paul references his imprisonment three different times in chapter 4, here in verse 3, in verse 10, verse 18. Furthermore, the letter of Philemon repeatedly references Paul's imprisonment, probably in Rome, which means that he would have been writing those words from a place somewhat like this. This is the Mamertine prison in Rome. I probably pronounced that wrong, but I feel pretty good about it, so... This is traditionally believed to be the place where both Peter and Paul were imprisoned. It was while sitting on these stone floors or ones very much like them that Paul asks the Colossian Christians to pray that he would not miss an opportunity to live out his life purpose, even in that setting. I stub my toe and I'm a wreck and people like need to serve me and bring me things, right? But Paul is in prison and he says, pray that I don't miss an opportunity. I want to leverage my life well, even here. And as with Paul's approach to prayer, I find myself asking if my life evidences the same kind of commitment to proclamation as Paul showed. Because no matter our origin story, anyone who is in Christ has the same kind of assignment to make Christ known in whatever context we find ourselves. Hopefully, not many of us will find ourselves in prison for our faith. But every single one of us will find ourselves in spaces and places where someone around us doesn't know the hope of Christ. And do we live with a desire not to miss those opportunities, like Paul says? Do we live with a constant expectancy that God wants those we know and love to find the grace and love that he alone can offer? And that he might actually use us as the messenger of such good news? I know that I can so often choose my own comfort over conviction. And Paul knew that that could have been his lot too. And so he asked the Colossians to pray for him. That he would recognize open doors for proclamation of the gospel. But that's not all we gain from Paul in this passage. We also learn that he was demanding of posture. 
So knowing that their spiritual father was under arrest and facing trial and hostility from the Roman authorities, it may have left the Colossian Christians at a loss for how to think generally of the surrounding culture that didn't share its faith in Jesus. Fortunately for them and for us, Paul doesn't leave them to sort it out on their own. Would you look at verses 5 and 6 again? Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's words are laced with kindness and compassion, with generosity and with grace. And if we're honest, that kind of thing runs the risk of falling flat in our hearts. Many of us have been raised to believe that true leadership is only modeled by those who paint half their face blue and give passionate speeches on horseback. Paul did not use this letter to raise up militants and agitators. Notice he did not write, hey, I am unfairly imprisoned, so rise up, you who know the true king, overthrow, overtake. Chances are the Roman Empire would not have responded gently to such a thing. Instead, Paul calls for a very different kind of revolution, one in which enemies become family. Just a quick word of explanation on a couple of the phrases and words that Paul includes here before we spend a little time talking about what this means for us. The term outsiders translates the Greek phrase tus exu, exo, literally those outside. Now, we are not to imagine Paul referring to the Christian church as an insider's experience with a bunch of others out of luck on the other side of some velvet rope. No. He uses this term to refer to those who do not yet know the truth of the gospel, the supremacy, the sufficiency, the beauty of Christ. But it's important to note that Paul himself uses this term elsewhere in the letter of 1 Corinthians and gives strong language to those actually inside the family of God when he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Same phrase. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Sadly, far too often, those who have experienced the grace of Jesus have responded as though there are no more empty seats at the table of God's family, rather than living with a longing to see outsiders come in as family. So when Paul encouraged the Colossians to make the most of every opportunity, he does not mean to be the obnoxious person who abruptly turns every conversation to spiritual themes. You know the kind of person I'm talking about. Like, did any Amazon deliveries come today? Better question, what will deliver you from your sins? Whoa. (laughs) Don't be that person. That's not what Paul means. Rather, Paul knows that by living in faithfulness to Jesus rather than the emperor or the pagan cults or the Jewish legalists, the lives of the Colossian Christians would always draw notice. And when they did, they were to be ready to proclaim Christ and to know how to answer everyone. But importantly, he insists on conversation that is marked by grace and saltiness. Numerous commentators point out that in ancient Greek usage... Saltiness of speech referred to something like wit, the kind of thing that spices up and makes conversation engaging. So notice that in all of this instruction, Paul's heart is that the insider-outsider distinction would be overcome, not through judgment and culture war, but through wisdom and winsomeness, through courage and conviction. It's easy to see behind Paul's instructions the same missionary impulse we looked at earlier, 
that the gospel would take root and that those who are currently outsiders would be presented with the truth of Christ in a way so compelling that they would long to come inside. There are two pitfalls of evangelism and cultural influence that Paul helps us avoid here. The first is this, the pitfall of not evangelizing at all. In our post-Christian world, it is not uncommon for those outside the family of God to perceive that all evangelism is really thinly disguised cultural colonialism. And many of us, rightly, want nothing to do with colonialism's dark underbelly. So we grant the premise, and we give in to the lie that our faith is personal and private only. This is a pitfall that I am personally susceptible to. When I'm in a crowd of those who don't share my faith, I'm not always thinking how I might make the most of every opportunity and know how to answer everyone in words that are marked by wisdom, winsomeness, and grace. But Paul calls the Colossians to be people who are ready. People who know how to make the most of every opportunity, who are ready to answer everyone. But the second pitfall is that of imagining that our content matters more than our conduct. Our Western society is often described as post-truth, and in such a setting, it can be really tempting just to shout truth louder, more insistently, more obnoxiously. But Paul has far more to say here about one's conduct than one's confession. He is not falling for the lie that imagines that truth is love no matter how unlovingly it's presented. Notably, even the Apostle Peter, who had his own history of behavioral miscues and running at the mouth, would one day write to another collection of early Christians, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Notice that Peter says the antidote to ignorance and foolishness is not turning up the volume on our truth claims but doing good. F.F. Bruce comments in his commentary, it remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the word of God can see the lives of those who do and can form their judgment accordingly. I was reminded this week of the story from Luke 10 in which Jesus sent out 72 disciples to prepare the way for his ministry. And he told them in preparation, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And as I heard that verse read, it struck me what great damage has been done to the Christian faith and witness when we get those two things mixed up. And stalk around like wolves among lambs, ready to devour and destroy any who don't yet see the the world the way we do. Now, if we're courageous enough to be honest, we can admit that the church hasn't always gotten this posture right. The church and historic, global perspective, and even this church in particular, has at times been guilty of expressing truth in ways that haven't been full of grace, seasoned with salt, and marked by wisdom. And that is a finger I'm pointing directly at myself. And many who belong to the family of God by faith in Christ have shrunk back from that track record in ways that have given up on making the most of every opportunity and knowing how to answer everyone. But fam, Paul's words to the Colossians are a challenge to each of us. As those who have known the grace of God, we have good news to share. And we must be ready to speak that truth loudly with both our lips and our lives. If that feels daunting to you, You're in a good spot. A spot, I imagine, not unlike Paul, as he wrote these very words we've studied here this morning, a place of deep awareness of your need for God's grace and power, 
that highlights your dependence on prayer. As you live out dedication to your purpose and the posture demanded by the life and example of Jesus himself. Because it's truly Jesus' posture towards those who opposed him, who devalued him, who didn't share his view of the world that we long to live out. The opening chapter of the Gospel of John describes it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And at this table, we're reminded how perfectly Jesus wedded grace and truth. Speaking the truth about the horrors of sin as an offense against God's holiness and demonstrating the enduring grace of God in laying down his own life in place of sinners. So if you are a part of the family of God by faith in this Christ, the one full of grace and truth, you are invited to this table. It's a table of testimony and a table of dedication. Come tell the story of Jesus' grace and truth in your own life and ask his spirit to make you a person of grace and truth in all the places he sends you. We'll have prayer teams on either side as well as in the back to pray with you about these things or anything at all as we continue in our worship.